Um, for those of you who don't know Henrik and Inga, who are going to come and speak to us in a moment, uh, Henrik and Inga, I first met them at HTB um, years ago. Um, this would be, before, I don't know, 18 years ago probably. Um, and uh, they were kind of very involved in the work there. Uh, Inga was heading up. Um, where is Inga? I'm still trying to catch her eye. Oh, you're right over there. Um, oh, you're doing the slicer. Um, and Inga was heading up Alpha UK and um, both just contributing amazingly. They're also on the marriage course videos. It, or was it the marriage prep? I can't remember. Both of them, both of them. They're the most hilarious sofa couple. If you ever want to watch that, they're just brilliant. Um, sorry, I'm just going to embarrass you now. And um, they um, now, uh, Henrik, uh, they, they then planted out to St. Paul Shadwell. They were involved in that plant for about 10 years, I think they were there. Um, church warden there and just contributing in amazing ways. And then, um, then they moved over here a few years ago, and they'll share some of their story now of that. But, but it is such a joy to have them speaking today and such a joy to have them in our community. So will you give Henrik a big welcome? And How do you want to do this? Sorry, we've had a total collapse of the um, handheld mic. So, um, Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Jerry. We love coming to this church. We've been coming for two, two years and a bit, and um, it's, it's a real privilege to be here. We, we really admire uh, Jerry and Camilla's leadership, and we enjoy our connect group with, with Angie and Shakti. So I'm going to tell you my story. Um, there will be a few uh, photos from the family album, not because I like to show them off, but uh, maybe it gives uh, a bit more life to the, to the story. And then you have a a two for the price of one today. So I'm going to tell my story, and then Inga is going to uh, share a few thoughts. She's kind of the, uh, the theologian in the family. So back in spring 2016, I was pretty tired. There were lots going on at work. The kids had just had their 11-plus exams. And in, in Shadwell, we're at, during an interregnum. And we'd had that for six months. And during the interregnum, the church wardens step up and do the work. Amanda did most of it. I tried to help a little bit. But with lots going on. And I can remember telling God, I really would like to go on a retreat. Go away on my own. Connect with you, God. Uh, just be looked after. Have meals cooked. Uh, and, and all of that. And little did I know that soon I would have 16 weeks in a room of my own. Three meals cooked and brought in every day and lots of looking after. So two days after we appointed the new vicar, it was around Easter in 2016, and one day after the APCM when I stepped down as church warden after 10 years, uh, I was going to have a routine operation. I was in my hospital gown, I was going to be rolled into the theater, and the surgeon came and said to me, so sorry, but I'm not going to operate on you today because I'll probably kill you. And they had t taken blood tests, and we all have something called neutrophils, and the level should be about three, um, and that kind of fights off infections. And he showed me my, my results, and I had 0 0.01 of neutrophils. So two days later, I was uh, officially diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. And simply put, AML is a cancer in the white blood cells. A very long story short, I've had one bone marrow transplant, I've had two 50-centimeter plastic tubes inserted into my chest, I've had four cycles of chemotherapy, I've had 12 bone marrow aspirations, which basically is a long needle put into part of your back, 
to get into the bone, a little twist, and get a piece of the bone out. They can look at it. I had 150 scans and x-rays, 500 needles inserted into me, and I've taken 7,000 pills, and I've always hated pills. And people tell me that this must have been absolutely terrible. And it was, and it has been, and it's been awful at times. And I would not want anyone to have to go through what I went through during that time. But I would like everyone to get to the kind of place where I think God has led me through this. A good friend, Jess Barnes, who's a vicar up at, at St. Stephen's, he says this, God often takes us on a journey we don't want to go on, but that leads to places we don't want to leave. My first cycle of chemotherapy failed. So they diagnosed that I had something called a fractured leukemia. And that meant I um, would then need to have a bone marrow transplant. And they gave me, for the second round, a really, really uh, heavy dose of, of chemotherapy. So around June 2016, I really did not know if I was going to make it. So I wrote a will. I asked people for forgiveness that I felt I had hurt. I spoke to the kids about this. And um, uh, it was a, a time when we also prayed a lot. And we had about 100 people on a WhatsApp group. And I was covered in prayers. And in a strange way, at that moment, I felt a total peace and had absolutely no fear. Just before, uh, before I was uh, hospitalized and, and got in there, uh, I had a, a weekend at home, and our, our vicar, um, now Bishop Rick, came along, and he declared that this journey for me and for us was going to be a fear-free zone. And it has been, and it is. Uh, I have had no fear. At times, it's been very, very sad. I've cried a lot. I was very sad about the, th of, of the thought of not growing old with Inga. I was desperately sad not seeing my kids uh, grow up, but I never had any fear. And I did cling on to God's promises in Scripture. And someone gave us a verse from Psalm 27. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And I really liked the living part. I also decided to really surrender to God, just to hand it over. If it was my time to go, then it was okay. And I must have sung the Hillsong song, Surrender, a hundred times in that hospital room and prayed prayers of surrender many more times. And when it comes to cancer, the doctors, they love talking about probabilities and percentages. So when I was first diagnosed, they said, you have about a 50% chance uh, of surviving. And then after my first chemo uh, failed, that those chances went down dramatically. They wouldn't tell me exactly how much. But then they told me, if you survive, you're then going to have a transplant. 20% of the patients that have a transplant, they die from the treatment. Another 30% get life-altering um, side effects. They go blind, deaf, uh, have skin rashes that, that, that makes it difficult for them. And in that, they also said that after five years, three-quarters of you people who have been diagnosed with AML will not live anymore. So if you try to do the cumulative math of this, it just makes your head in. So I decided, instead of focusing on all these scenarios, I was going to hold on to the promise that there is a 100% chance that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have called according to his purpose. This didn't mean I knew I was going to be healed. 
it, I didn't even know if I was going to see Christmas, but I knew that everything was going to be okay. Then towards the end of the second critical uh, chemo cycle, I just had a sense that um, although I was in this dark, deep hole, that I had a sense of Jesus' hand just reaching down and pulling me up. And then a couple of days later, on July 4th, American Independence Day, my neutrophils started working again. And it was really interesting that um, <laughs> my entire life had just been stripped, stripped back during these uh, weeks in hospital, just the bare essentials. I was totally broken, I could support no one, I couldn't work, and I wasn't useful in any way. I wouldn't say that I've been too focused on kind of my outward roles, being a banker or being a church warden, although being a church warden is pretty special. But I think in the past, I've got a lot of self-worth out of being seen as being competent. Competent at school, uh, doing okay at work, being able to provide for my family, and so on. But now, for months and months, I was completely incompetent. And it made me think about my identity. And a, a bishop in East London, um, Bishop Adrian, he was very helpful in, in kind of articulating this for me. He sent me an email just after I had been diagnosed. He said this, there will be lots of ups and downs on your journey, Henrik, but you need to know this. Whatever happens, you are a beloved child of God. And I've been a Christian all my life, and I knew this in my head, but it hadn't gotten to my heart until this moment. Now, two years on, I'm still able to embrace this knowledge, but I have to consciously uh, remind myself that my value does not come from being competent, but I can relax and I can rely on God's competence, his care, his love, and his purpose. Now back to the story. In October 2016, I had the stem cell transplant uh, that gave me a completely new uh, immune system. And although it was a long uh, road to recovery, it all went quite well until the spring of last year, 2017. I suddenly got very strange symptoms. My legs started to swell up. I had aching muscles, constant aching muscles. Uh, my, my liver values uh, uh, went down, I went yellow, and it was really, really bizarre. Now, the doctors, they do all kinds of tests on leukemia patients, but one they like to do is called the inflammation marker, or CRP. And it basically doesn't uh, give you exact diagnosis of what the issue is, but there is issue. Um, so normally you should have about three, four, five, um, so when this started to happen, my inflammation markers went to 15, went to 35, went to 75. At that time, the doctor started to look worried, went to 130. I was hospitalized at that point, and it peaked at 250. And the doctors, they knew there were lots of things going on, but they didn't really know how to solve this. So that, at that moment, uh, Inger had a James 514 uh, moment, and it says this. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. So on the 12th of July, 2017, 20 people gathered in our front room in Shortlands, so North, North Kingston. They prayed for me, anointed me with oil. And I remember telling them that my body is totally broken. I am desperate. I'm at the end of my tether. I, I, I hate having constant pain. I have constant pain for weeks on end. And I told them I need to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. They prayed for me for an hour. I, was, I felt God's peace. I 
and felt God's presence, but nothing seemed to happen. Went to bed. Next morning, I woke up. My swelling was gone. My pain was gone. Before I could hardly go to the bar, walk to the bathroom, now I could take Harriet to Wimbledon for half a day. And I knew at that time that I had been healed. Um, and when I took the next text, test for the inflammation marker, it had come down to the normal level. And all the other le levels, uh, the liver and the thyroid, were going back to normal. And since that day, I've had no issues at all, no side effects. And doctors, when I go and see them, I go and see them every, every six or eight weeks now, they show me a graph uh, on the computer, and it looks like a mountain peak. Okay? My inflammation marker goes up to 250, and then around 12th of July, it goes down. It's been a straight line since. And although I explain to them, every single doctor, and they all are amazed how well I'm doing, that, that on that day, we had uh, a prayer meeting, Prayer meeting still hasn't got into the official <laughs> medical records. <laughs> I was able to start working uh, in October last year, and as of February this year, I've taken over my, my, my previous job uh, leading a team. I'm on a journey. I have still have lots of questions, and I don't know what's going to happen. But I wake up every morning, and I'm so grateful for the gift of life, and I continue to hold it with very open hands. And I know that living a surrendered life, a life without fear, and a life where I know what my true identity is, that I'm a beloved child of God, that is a place I do not want to leave. Amen. Amazing, eh? Amazing. Praise the Lord. I'm going to read to you um, from John 16, as Inga has asked me to, and then uh, she's going to come and speak to us. It's John 16 from verse 16. It's titled, The Disciples' Grief Will Turn to Joy. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more, then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? <laughs> Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take your joy. In that day you will no longer ask me anything, very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me 
and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly, without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things, and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Thanks, Jerry. So I think that there are about enough stories and lessons from the 15 months that Henrik was sick to fill up a small library. So I've had to select one thing, and I've chosen to speak to you about one thing that I hope will encourage you and strengthen you um, beyond anything else I might have chosen. And I've got 15 minutes to do this, so hold on to your hats, people. (laughs) So uh, have you noticed in the Bible that God loves imagery? You can see it in the reading today how the disciples are kind of exasperated because um, Jesus keeps um, talking figuratively. Now, God often, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see the prophets talking about um, using visual imagery and Jesus talking in parables, that often um, God uses material creation to to explain spiritual truth. And uh, basically, you'll see it if you want to see it. And uh, I just, I think that the Lord keeps doing these things. He uses situations to explain other situations to us. And while I was kind of watching Henrik and, 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 and praying and asking God what he was doing during the time that Henrik was sick, I felt like the Lord was saying to me that um, there, was a, there was an image, there was a, something he was illustrating through Henrik's illness that is actually applicable to the spiritual battle that we're in. And I've made some, um, because I'm, I'm quite a, a visual person, I've made some, um, just some pictures to help us um, today. So um, the idea behind, behind what I want to say is about growing a spiritual immune system. And um, this is, I think, the Lord was highlighting the importance of having a healthy immune, spiritual immune system. So if we look at immune systems the way that they work in our bodies, and I have to apologize to any doctors or any artists for the lack of detail, but um, if you look at a healthy immune system, what you've got in your bodies is something called, um, I think they're called myeloid, uh, myoblasts. This is an amazing cell in your body, the myoblast, who then differentiates, it's a white blood cell, that then then differentiates into 16 different types of white blood cells. And those 16 types of white blood cells, I've got all the names there, but I'm not going to read them out. Those 16 blood cells, they work together to fight pathogens like viruses, bacteria, and fungi. And they almost create um, like an internal force field. It doesn't quite work that way, but you can imagine. And it's amazing with being constantly surrounded, I hope nobody has phobias here, but constantly surrounded by viruses, bacteria, and fungi, how seldomly we actually get sick because our immune systems work. And um, 
when it comes to Henrik's immune system then, he mentioned he had no immune system, virtually no immune system. And what had happened with, with Henrik was that that myoblast cell had not differentiated into the various uh, 16 parts that it was meant to become. So he didn't have that defense against the viruses, the bacteria, and the fungi. And basically, it was a, it it a free-for-all. And that's why the kids and I, when we went to visit him, we had to have all the plastic sheets over us and gloves and, and, and face uh, those little masks and stuff. And it was summer, and it was hot, and it wasn't fun. Anyway, um, just so that we wouldn't spread any bacteria or any illnesses to Henrik, because it would have killed him. And basically, this myoblast is frozen in its immature state, and that will eventually kill you. So, these pathogens, I think that there's a spiritual analogy there, because it can be a picture of the spiritual battle that we're in, because the enemy will throw all kinds of things at you, and if you do not have a healthy spiritual immune system, it will very easily kill you spiritually. And um, Paul writes um, to us, and he says, take your stand against the devil's schemes. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So instead of those pathogens, what we got are rulers, authorities, powers, spiritual forces of evil that come to attack. And it's important to understand the context. What is the context behind this? What is the war about? And listen carefully, because this is key. The Bible tells us that from the very start, before the creation of the world, there is one who set himself up against God. Paul describes the enemy this way in 2 Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians 2, he says, he describes him saying, he opposes and exalts himself. He sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This is how Satan works, deceiving those who are perishing. So the enemy's strategy is to exalt himself and steal worship away from God. And where he cannot outright steal it, he will divert worship away from God anywhere to yourself. He will do it towards things, to others, to just being really busy, maybe gaming, whatever. It doesn't really matter to him, I'm sure, as long as the worship is away from God. And this is what the Old Testament called idolatry. So you can, if you understand the backstory, you start to begin to understand why it's a big deal. It diverts you away from the most important orientation of your life towards your Father in heaven who loves you. And when that orientation is misdirected, that's when chaos at different levels ensues. So the question is, how does the enemy do that? How in the world? How does he divert us? Well, the, be the enemy begins by attacking our minds the way that we think. And from Genesis 3, from the beginning of the Bible until now, the enemy always, th I think, begins by casting doubt on God's goodness and his faithfulness and his trustworthiness. He goes for the jugular. 
basically our greatest vulnerability. And why? Because if you don't believe that God is good, then it takes away your reasons for trusting him. Would you trust somebody who you thought was unfaithful or untrustworthy or basically evil? No, you wouldn't if you knew what was good for you. And so the enemy does this by inundating us with issues. So pain, problems, catastrophes, obstacles, all these things. And um, I've noticed um, kind of a, a pattern um, in, my, in my own life and in the lives of, of very close friends over the last year that the enemy just throws so much at them that they, they just feel like it's just too much. It's too much. And they may have prayed for a while, but after a while they start flagging because they're like, like they begin to ask those questions that the enemy is seeding, is sowing in their minds, causing doubt. Would a good God allow you to suffer like this? God may care for other people, but he's obviously forgotten about you. And it makes you wonder. So when Henrik got sick, um, we had already decided to move from um, Greenwich to Kingston. The kids had already gotten into a school here. And um, that was February, and Henrik got sick at the end of April. And I suddenly I found myself like basically as, as like a single parent because Henrik was completely out of commission. And he, being a banker, he'd done all our finances before. I didn't even know, I'll admit, how to do an online payment. And uh, all of a sudden, I was in charge of all our finances. I had, we hadn't even sold our house. I had to sell the house. I had to found a, find a rental in Kingston. I had to, then I had to move from that. We had to move the whole family there. Then we had to move, um, then we had to buy another house that needed a renovation um, that we could then move into. And during this time, my dad was also diagnosed with cancer. So there were a few things. There were a few challenges going on. And every one of those things came with their own set of issues. And it often felt like an impossibility. And I felt like the Lord asked me one question over and over in such a gentle way. But what he asked was, Inger, who do you say I am? And I knew that my response to that was really important to him. It really mattered to him what I said. And I'd, I had to make up my own mind, like, what do I believe about God? And um, just, just also important to say, when you're in the midst of all these things, you can still see God's goodness. We saw more miracles during those 15 months than I have ever seen put together in my previous the previous however many years, I'll not tell you. But anyway, um, God did thing after thing after thing after thing as we put our trust in him and, um, and remembered who he was. So Peter, in First uh, Peter 5, writes this. He says, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith. So how does a spiritually healthy immune system respond? Well, I would like to suggest that the spiritually healthy immune system, it clings to the truth, no matter how stormy it gets. And the truth is that God is faithful and always good 
He is for me and not against me. God's plans are better than mine. He's never promised to answer every, every prayer request the way I ask them. He's never said, I will do exactly what you ask me. Um, but he does say um, that, but, but I can trust that his will is better than mine. And if I tap into what he wants to do, he says, ask things in my name. That means I'm asking for what he wants to do. Then he says, I will do it. So there's a few things there that are important to remember. But also remembering God is working for my good. And he is more than able to fulfill his purposes for me. So it's good to prepare now. Many of you will probably have gone through more things than we ever have already. Um, but especially for younger people, prepare now. Get to know the Lord. Read the Bible. Spend time with him. Pray and, and sit with him and let his Holy Spirit fill you so that you know who he is. You need to know who he is. And... Um, the other thing um, comes that's really key to do as well is a verse that we find in 2 Corinthians 10.5 uh, where Paul again says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. That's God's goodness, the knowledge of who he is. Every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So basically what we need to do when we're in one of those situations is stop, just stop, and catch the thoughts that you have about God. Have a look at them and say, are my thoughts about you, Lord, is that in alignment with what you say, who, who I know that you are? Because the enemy is, is trying to divert you to think that, to basically believe lies about God. And so we need to remind ourselves who God is, what his character is like. It is, is it like him to be unfaithful? No, it's not. Is it like him to shower love and goodness on his children? Yes, it is. So, and the second thing also is to worship your heart out. Now, worship is not only for the times when we feel good, we're happy, and we feel like God deserves it. Worship is also a form of, it's like a weapon that we use against the enemy to say, the enemy is saying all these lies about God, but I am going to declare in worship what is true about God. So I'm kind of preaching to myself through worship, and I'm declaring it to the heavenly realms who are maintaining another, another um, position. Then entrust yourself to God and speak that truth to your own heart. He will, break, he will bring about great good. And he says, be still and know that I am God. And when we still ourselves, we remember who he really is, then a stillness kind of enters into our, into our hearts and lives as well. And we have the peace of God. This does not mean that you will not see trouble or that you'll be delivered immediately. It's a war after all, and the enemy does not play fair. Don't ever expect the enemy to play fair. He doesn't. But see, says Jesus, I have overcome the world. And we must remember that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And holding on to your faith during these mind battles 
brings about a deepening of faith in God, in his goodness and his faithfulness, and it makes you more immune to future attacks. So just like those white, mature white blood cells, you will develop into one of the 16. Because your maturity is not only good for you, your maturity is good for me. Because it matters how we live our lives. Our impact and influence through faith in Jesus and quiet obedience is more powerful than you could ever imagine. It's an encouragement to not give up, even if you feel unseen or unrecognized. We are not. The way we live our lives in relation to God matters deeply to other people. It matters to the church. And together, the members of the church form a sort of immune system. So if we remember the 16 forms of the white blood cell that work together to fight pathogen attacks, we also need to come together to encourage and help each other. And I remember when Henrik first got sick and everybody heard that he didn't have an immune system, I said to the church in Shadwell, I said, you know what? When Henrik lost his immune system, you rallied around him like an immune system, covering him in prayer. Just like those white blood cells, they attack the pathogen and immobilize it. And the church itself um, as well is also under attack. It is surrounded um, by deception, challenges, discouragement, temptation, persecution. And there are ways that we as an immune system need to fight back against these things together. And uh, I was just, you know, remember, um, remember on Sunday, on Sunday, Last week, we recalled the ends of the horrors of World War I, and my kids and I watched Peter Jackson's film, They Shall Not Grow Old, and what struck me uh, through that was just the courage that people um, took from each other, the friendships, the sacrifice, the courage they saw in others, it all made a difference to individual soldiers. So you standing your ground and being genuinely anchored in God's goodness really matters to others. And God knows how he made us. Just like an immune system is not made up of just one white blood cell, it's made up of a, of a, of a number of them, we cannot stand alone. God chose us together as the church to be salt and light in this world. And um, Paul, again, he, he speaks of the enemy of this world, and he says... The God of this world, the enemy, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. So basically, the, the world walks around in blindness. It does not see the creator who made it. And uh, when we together proclaim the truth that God is good and trustworthy to bring about great good, we shine a light in that dark and lost world. We point the world to its trustworthy creator. And in this way, the enemy loses ground. As more and more people put their trust in God, are reconciled to him, stand firm, and direct their worship to the only one who is worthy of it, this is how we fight our battles. By remembering the truth of the one who loved us enough to give himself up for us. 
to stand your ground against the way that the enemy casts doubt on his good character. Because God is good and trustworthy, always has been and always will be. And if you'll stand with me and close your eyes, we're going to sing that song again. This is how we fight our battles. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you.